Welcome to the JPGN podcast for September 2009. I'm James Liu. This podcast will outline selected articles from this month's issue of the Journal of Pediatric Gastroenterology and Nutrition. For more information and to access the complete articles, please visit us online at www.jpgn.org or visit our society webpage at www.naspagan.org. Our first article is an invited review entitled Quality of Healthcare in the United States Implications for Pediatric Inflammatory Bowel Disease by Boyle et al. The Institute of Medicine's publications To Air is Human and Crossing the Quality Chasm publicized the widespread deficits in U.S. health care quality. Emerging studies continue to reveal deficits in the quality of adult and pediatric care, including subspecialty care. In recent years, key stakeholders in the health care system, including providers, purchasers, and the public, have been applying various quality improvement methods to address these concerns. Lessons learned from these efforts in other pediatric conditions, including asthma, cystic fibrosis, neonatal intensive care, and liver transplantation, may be applicable to the care of children with inflammatory bowel disease. This review is intended to be a primer on the quality of care movement in the United States, with a focus on pediatric IBD. In this article, we review the history, rationale, and methods of quality measurement and improvement, and we discuss the unique challenges in adapting these general strategies to pediatric IBD care. Our next article is entitled, Positive Association Between Helicobacter Pylori and Gastroesophageal Reflux Disease in Children, by Moon et al. The role of Helicobacter pylori in gastroesophageal reflux disease remains controversial, particularly in children since there are limited published data. The authors aimed to study the role of H. pylori infection in gastroesophageal reflux disease development in pediatrics, given that adult studies suggest H. pylori may be protective against GERD since the infection causes atrophic gastritis, thus decreasing gastric acid secretion. A retrospective analysis of patients undergoing upper endoscopy was conducted. Patients were evaluated if they had histologic evidence of reflux esophagitis, a biomarker of GERD. Patients were also identified if H. pylori was evident from the endoscopy. The mean age of the study population was 8.2 years, with a range of 0 to 20 years. Patients in this study were scoped for recurrent abdominal pain, malabsorption, persistent vomiting, suspected eosinophilic gastrointestinal disorders, and others such as upper GI bleeding or IBD surveillance. Among the 420 patients, 16 patients, or 3.8%, were positive for H. pylori, and 167 patients, or 39.8%, were found to have reflux esophagitis. Prevalence of reflux esophagitis was 81% in patients with H. pylori versus 38% in non-H. pylori individuals. The authors calculated an odds ratio of 5.8 for developing reflux esophagitis for patients with H. pylori in the study cohort. The authors conclude that these findings support an association between reflux esophagitis and GERD in children. Our next article is entitled Prevalence and Clinical Relevance of CAG-A, VAC-A, and ICE-A genotypes of Helicobacter pylori isolated from Slovenian children by Homan et al. 
H. pylori infection can induce asymptomatic chronic gastritis in children. The clinical outcome of chronic gastritis is generally unpredictable. The prevalence of the H. pylori virulence genes CAG-A, VAC-A, and ICE-A were assessed and correlated with the severity of histological changes in the stomachs of southeastern European children to identify the risk subgroup of infected children. A total of 165 children with H. pylori infection were studied over a six-year period. Their age range was 4 to 18 years, with a mean age of 13 years. Virulence genes were determined by PCR from biopsy samples. The CAG-A gene was present in 61.2% of patients. The predominant VAC-A genotype was S1M1, followed by S1M2 and S2M2. ICE-A genotypes, ICE-A1 and ICE-A2, were detected in about two-thirds and one-third of this group, respectively. Multiple genotypes were found in about 12% of isolates. CAG-A positive status did correlate with a higher H. pylori density score and degree of acute and chronic inflammation. VAC-A S1 positive status was significantly associated with higher bacterial infiltration and degree of chronic inflammation. The CAG-A, VAC-A, S1M1, and ICE-A1 genotypes are the predominant genotypes of H. pylori isolated from this European pediatric population. While CAG-A and VAC-A S1 are important virulence determinants, they were not found to be associated with an increased incidence of precancerous gastric lesions. Our next article is entitled Variation in Care in Pediatric Crohn's Disease by Coletti et al. Variation in medical care can be a barrier to improving clinical outcomes. The aim of this study was to describe the variation in the care of Crohn's disease as provided by a broad sample of pediatric gastroenterologists. The authors looked at 246 patients with Crohn's disease who were starting treatment with either thiopurine or infliximab. These patients were under the care of 93 pediatric gastroenterologists from 48 different practice sites. The authors studied the variation in diagnostic testing that the different providers performed to establish the diagnosis of Crohn's disease, as well as the tests used to assess the phenotype, extent, and severity of disease. Additionally, the authors assessed the variation in initial thiopurine and infliximab dose and nutritional therapy. The authors found that diagnostic studies in which care was uniform included complete blood count, which was performed in 100% of patients, erythrocyte sedimentation rate and colonoscopy in 96%, and upper endoscopy in 89%. However, imaging of the small bowel had not been performed in 19%, and a stool test for pathogens had not been performed in 29%. Thiopurine methyltransferase, or TPMT, had been measured in 61% of patients prior to treatment with the thiopurine, with 85% of these patients having normal enzyme activity. Nonetheless, even when TPMT was normal, 40% of patients received an initial dose of thiopurine that was lower than recommended. Testing for tuberculosis prior to initiating treatment with infliximab was not performed in 30%. In addition, 36% of severely underweight patients were not receiving a multivitamin supplement, supplemental formula, or tube feeding. Based on these findings, the authors concluded that there is, indeed, variation in diagnostic and therapeutic interventions in the management of pediatric Crohn's disease, and that gaps do exist between recommended and actual care.
Our next article is entitled, Does Giardia Lamblia Cause Villus Atrophy in Children? A Retrospective Cohort Study of the Histological Abnormalities in Giardiasis by Coot et al. The authors attempted to determine the prevalence and type of histological abnormalities in duodenal mucosa associated with Giardia Lamblia in children who undergo esophagogastroduodenoscopy. Duodenal biopsies containing Giardia Lamblia were retrieved from pediatric patients who had undergone endoscopy over the last 20 years. After excluding all patients with concomitant celiac disease, 4 out of 32 patients, or 13%, had biopsies showing crypt hyperplasia, and 1 out of 32 patients, or 3%, had partial villus atrophy. No intraepithelial lymphocytosis was found. Other histological abnormalities frequently observed were increased eosinophilic infiltration of the lamina propria in 35% and lymphoid follicle formation in 35%. Infiltration of neutrophilic and eosinophilic granulocytes in the epithelial layer was observed less frequently in 16 and 9% respectively. The authors conclude that villus atrophy intraepithelial lymphocytosis, and or crypt hyperplasia were rare in children with giardiasis who underwent EGD. Therefore, other causes, particularly celiac disease, should always be suspected. This study suggests, however, that giardiasis can cause chronic mucosal inflammation, often of eosinophilic nature, in these children. Our next article is entitled, Hepatic Fibrosis Scan for Liver Stiffness Score Measurement, a Useful Pre-Endoscopic Screening Test for the Detection of Varices in Postoperative Biliary Atresia Patients, by Chang et al. Even after successful Kasai portoenterostomy, progressive hepatic fibrosis in postoperative patients with biliary atresia can be associated with portal hypertension and esophageal or gastric varices. Therefore, early diagnosis and close follow-up of varices are important. The authors investigated the correlation between the liver stiffness scores measured by FibroScan and the presence of esophageal or gastric varices to examine the usefulness of FibroScan as a pre-endoscopic screening test for varices. A total of 49 out of 81 children with biliary atresia following successful Kasai operations were enrolled in this study. Fibroscan and endoscopic examination were performed prospectively. Esophageal or gastric varices were present in 30 patients and absent in 19. The mean liver stiffness score was significantly higher in those patients with varices. The authors conclude that liver stiffness scores measured by Fibroscan correlate well with the presence of esophageal or gastric varices. They report that Fibroscan is a novel, non-invasive, and useful screening method for the pre-endoscopic detection of varices in postoperative patients with biliary atresia. Our next article is entitled, Screening of Metabolic Syndrome in Obese Children, a Primary Care Concern, by Vigiano et al. The aims of this study were to, one, determine the prevalence of metabolic syndrome in a pediatric primary care setting, and two, to collect clinical information and biochemical data, more specifically HDL, triglyceride, and fasting glucose levels. The authors of this study enrolled 415 obese pediatric patients through the Italian National Health Service, 
Metabolic syndrome was diagnosed in these patients if at least two of the four following criteria were found, fasting hyperglycemia, low HDL levels, hypertriglyceridemia, and hypertension. Among these 415 patients, the prevalence of metabolic syndrome was found to be 30.8%. Major findings were 46.2% of the subjects had low HDL cholesterol levels, 23.6% had hypertension, 22.2% had hypertriglyceridemia, and 16.6% .6 had fasting hyperglycemia. Waist-to-height ratio was the only clinical parameter determined to be directly related to metabolic syndrome with the same predictive power as measuring insulin resistance. From these findings, the authors concluded that a significant percentage of obese children who are often seen as healthy may in fact have undiagnosed metabolic syndrome. From this, they further concluded that the development and implementation of pediatric obesity screening programs are important and justified. The authors recommend using the waist-to-height ratio as a clinical screening tool to identify patients at risk for metabolic syndrome. Our next article is entitled, Growth Assessment of Pediatric CF Patients Comparing Different Oxologic Indicators, a Multicenter Italian Study, by Lucidi et al. A multi-center cross-sectional study was performed in Italian reference centers to evaluate growth in patients with cystic fibrosis. Anthropometric data were evaluated using the CDC 2000 reference. Nutritional failure was defined as height less than the 5th percentile, weight for length less than the 10th percentile, and body mass index less than the 15th percentile. The risk for malnutrition and the proportion of patients below the BMI percentile goal of 50 were also evaluated. Nutritional status was evaluated in the whole population in relation to age, gender, pancreatic insufficiency, meconium ileus, and lung function. A total of 892 CF patients were enrolled. The proportion of children with height less than the 5th percentile was 12.2%, weight for length less than 10th percentile was 12.9%, and BMI less than 15th percentile was 20.9%. 54.4% did not fulfill the goal of over 50th percentile BMI. Patients with height less than 25th percentile identified the highest proportion of children at risk for malnutrition, whereas BMI of less than 15th percentile identified the highest proportion of children with nutritional failure. Whatever the criterion used to define malnutrition, the highest proportion of children with nutritional failure was found in adolescents. Z-scores for height, weight, and BMI were significantly associated with pancreatic status and lung function. Differences among centers for oxologic parameters were not significant, except for BMI percentile. The authors conclude that nutritional failure is present in a minority of Italian CF patients, particularly during adolescence. Different oxologic indicators should be used for identifying children at risk or with actual malnutrition. Our final article this month is a short communication entitled The Celiac Disease Diagnostic Approach of Italian Pediatricians by Oricio et al on behalf of the Italian Society for Pediatric Gastroenterology, Hepatology, and Nutrition. 
The aim of this study was to investigate the current implementation of the 1990 ESPGAN criteria for the diagnosis of celiac disease in Italy in order to form a foundation for their revision. From September 2006 to March 2007, a nationwide questionnaire concerning current diagnostic methods was sent by mail to 54 Italian centers for the diagnosis of celiac disease, which were distributed across the entire national territory. The questionnaire investigated the tests performed, diagnostic criteria currently used, and the management of some special cases in each center. 80% of the centers use anti-tissue transglutaminase to diagnose celiac disease and anti-endomesial antibodies to confirm the results. 55% still use anti-gliadin antibodies. 87.5% of centers perform HLA typing, especially in first-degree relatives and in unclear diagnoses. Regarding histology, 67.5% of centers consider an infiltrative lesion consistent with diagnosis of celiac disease. The majority of centers, 85%, use the 1990 ESPGAN criteria for both symptomatic and asymptomatic patients, but 80% do not perform a second biopsy in asymptomatic cases or a gluten challenge in children less than two years of age. Furthermore, most centers, or 72.5%, do not prescribe a gluten-free diet to asymptomatic patients with positive serology and normal bowel architecture, but they do program a careful follow-up. In conclusion, ESPGAN criteria are widely followed by Italian celiac disease centers. However, the revision might be useful, but it should be evidence-based. Large multi-center studies are greatly needed. This concludes the JPGN podcast for September 2009. The executive producer is Daniel Gelfond. The editor-in-chief of JPGN is Eric Sibley. The JPGN podcast is recorded by the Pediatric GI Fellows of Stanford University. For more information and to access the full articles, please visit us online at www.jpgn.org or visit our society webpage at www.naspagan.org. I'm James Liu. Thank you.